want to say hi to those joining us in the cafe, the restop, and online. We're glad you're part of this. We're in a story, the story of Ruth. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open that, lay that in your lap. It might be very important this morning. Grab the note page, get a pen. We're going to fly. Let me tell you, as you do that, I want to tell you something this morning, and that's this. If you normally come to Grace Church, uh, you might be like, okay, normally what we do is sing, he preaches, we leave. Listen close. I'd love for everybody when I'm done preaching to stay in their seat because we're going to sing a couple more songs at the end. And we're going to end with worship today. Can we do that? So I'd love it if you just stayed where you're at and we had a chance to respond as we finish this story, the story of Ruth. It's been a fascinating story. I've heard from a lot of you during this story. Some of you haven't had the chance to be here. And so let me catch you up to speed on the story of Ruth. Here's what you need to know about the Bible, first and foremost. I say this almost every week, but I encourage you to read the Bible in color, not black and white. Here's why. The Bible is full of stories of real people, real situations, real circumstances. And sometimes it's full of stories of people and their responses to real situations when those real situations turn real bad real quick. That's the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is about a family and things turned real bad real quick because they were living in Israel during the darkest days of Israel's history. Literally, it was the days where the judges ruled. Everybody did whatever they wanted to. And this family had a dad, husband. His name was Elimelech. His wife's name is Naomi. They have two boys, Malon and Kilion. You can forget that. But here's what happens. They live in the days of Israel. God sends a famine because God loves them and wants to discipline them so they're not left to their own devices. In the middle of that famine, the dad, Elimelech, makes a decision. And the decision that he makes that we talked about, you might be able to relate to, is this. Instead of doing what I know God wants me to do, I'm going to do what feels and seems right to me. And he makes this decision to move his family out of Bethlehem to Moab, the forbidden land of Moab. God said, I don't want you to live there. I don't want you to marry there. Those people worship the demon god Chemosh. They sacrifice their kids to that god. It's full of sexual promiscuity. I don't want you going there. Elimelech decides to do what seems right. He decides to compromise, leads his family there. And as you read the first seven verses, chapter one, you see that his compromise is contagious because his boys end up marrying Moabite women. When you get to verse seven, here's what happens. All three guys die. And we're left with three widows. Naomi, Elimelech's wife, and the boys married two gals, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi, you can imagine, life's dealt her a hard hand and she's bitter. She's angry. She's blaming God. She can only focus on herself. But she hears that things had turned around in Bethlehem. So she decides, I'm going to head back to Bethlehem. The daughters-in-law are going to go with her. But she's so bitter, she tries to convince them to go back to their pagan God, go back to their homes. One of them listens. Her name's Orpah. She says, yeah, that makes sense to me. I'm going to go back. But Ruth says, I'm going to cling to hope because I think hope is found in the God of Naomi. So where you go, I'm going to go. Where you stay, I'm going to stay. Your God's going to be my God, your people, my people. When you get to the end of chapter one, Naomi says, I'm so bitter, I'm going to change my name. My name is now Mara, which means bitter old woman. Life's been hard to me. And she's there with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. It opens up in chapter two, which we looked at. 
And when you get to chapter 2, you realize that Ruth knew enough to know that somehow the God of Israel, Naomi's God, had figured a way to provide for those that were marginalized, poor, and vulnerable in their society, and that way was gleaning in the fields. So the people who owned fields would leave some of their fields so the poor could come along and have something they could work for so they could eke out a living. So Ruth says to Naomi, hey, I'm going to go glean in a field, hope I find favor in the person's eyes in whom field I'm gleaning, and it just, ready, so happened, she was gleaning in the field of a man named Boaz, and Boaz was not your typical landowner, because Boaz, CEO of the company, literally looked in the field, and he saw this foreign, poor, vulnerable widow gal that he had never seen before, But he didn't just take note of her. He went over to her uncommon. He began talking to her uncommon. He began to speak to her tenderly. She hadn't experienced that for a while. And he says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. But he goes a step further. He says, I want to invite you to my table. He goes a step further. He doesn't just invite her to sit at his table. He begins to serve her, the poor foreign widow gal Ruth. All of a sudden, we saw something begin to spin in chapter two, but it ends with both of them going back to their homes. A couple months pass, and we get to chapter three, and man, it blew our minds last week because when you get to chapter three, Naomi says, man, we gotta marry you off. We gotta find you a husband. And she devises a plan. She says, I know this Boaz guy you've been gleaning in his field, and she gives her some very perplexing advice. She tells her to go to the threshing floor in the middle of the night, risky, not a place where a woman wanted to be. And she tells her, I want you to go there. When he's sleeping, uncover his feet. He'll tell you what to do. Ruth follows her advice, goes to the threshing floor, uncovers Boaz's feet. He wakes up. Boom, there's a woman. But here's what we find in the middle of that character test. He doesn't tell her what to do, does he? Why? Because Boaz is a man of character. Boaz is a man of character. Instead, he asks her who she is. And once she explains, I'm Ruth, and she's saying to him, will you be the answer to God's prayer? You prayed that, it, that, that somebody would redeem me, that I would be sheltered under God's wing, and I'm asking you, Boaz, will you be the answer to that prayer? And Boaz decides at that point in time that we got to do what's right, not what's easy, because there's somebody who's in line before me to be your guardian redeemer. There's somebody who has the right of first refusal. So he looks at Ruth and says, a man of character says we got to do what's right, not what's easy. And so in the morning, he decides to send her back to Naomi with 80 pounds of grain. And then he sets on his way to do what is right as a man of character would do. Which is where we pick it up in chapter 4. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at it with me because it is a fascinating story. (laughs) Meanwhile, Boaz, man of character, went up to the town gate. Look here a second. That doesn't mean much to us. We're like, what is that? Just a gate? That's where they conducted business. That's where they held court. So he's going to the place where, man, this is where stuff happens. He goes to the town gate, sat down there just as the guardian redeemer, the guy who had the right to first refusal. That guy he mentioned came along. Boaz said this to that guy. Look at this. Come over here, my friend, and sit down. Look here a second. This is just interesting. If you circle my friend, and you ought to, Literally, when he says, my friend, in Hebrew, here's what it would have sounded like. Poloni almoni. Poloni almoni. On the count of three, let's all say it together. One, two, three. Poloni almoni. That was weak. Let's say it again. Poloni almoni. You're like, why are you saying that? Because here's literally what it means. 
hey, whatchamacallit. <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's like, hey, Mr. So-and-so. In fact, if you see somebody they can't remember their name, say, hey, what's up, Poloni Almoni, right? And try it on them. They'll be impressed, right? This guy's no name. He's just like, hey, so-and-so. So, so-and-so went over, sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And he did so, verse 3. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, that's Mr. Whatchamacallit, by the way. Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And then Boaz does something that if you've been following the story, because it feels like a Hallmark story, right? It feels like, woo, this thing's kind of going to the right place. And then Boaz does some head-scratching stuff because you kind of don't want him to be too good about talking about the deal, and he's almost too good about it. He said, if you'll redeem it, do so. You're like, Boaz? But if you will not, tell me so I'll know. For no one has the right to do it except you and I'm next in line. Look here a second. If you're watching this play out, you're like, Boaz, I think I'd have said it in a way that wouldn't have been so good. Like he's saying to this guy, hey, there's some land. If you want some land, well, land was everything in their culture. You bet. I'm next in line. And so here's what happens. It's almost like, here's what he says. The guy says, Mr. So-and-so says, okay, I'll redeem it. It's almost like if the story ends there, you're like, are you kidding me? Like all this tension, all this drama, the music in the background, it's like, this dude gets Ruth? And, and, and can you imagine Ruth? Read this in color. She's standing maybe back here and she's listening to Bo. She's like, you, what? Like, like Bo, Boaz, I thought we like had this conversation. Like, man, couldn't you have said something to sway the guy? But here's the deal. Well, here's what you need to know about Boaz. Boaz is a lot more shrewd than we thought because look at verse five. The guy says, I'll redeem it. Verse five, Boaz says, okay, cool. Not cool. Boaz like, cool. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth. Oh, no, no, not just Ruth, but Ruth the Moabite, <laughs> the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. I love this, right? Because Boaz like, oh, you want the land? Cool. Boaz kind of says, that's awesome. He says, because it's two for one. Like, you not only get the land, but you get Ruth. Oh, did I tell you she's a Moabite? She's a widow? Oh, by the way, two for one, you get the cranky old mother-in-law with her. And it's an incredible deal, right? Look at the dude's response. I love it. The dude says, I got to pray about it. No. Nope. Verse six, at this, the moment he says, the guardian redeemer says, I don't think I can redeem that. You know what I'm saying? It might endanger my own estate. You involved people and that's gonna get in the way of what I want. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Verse seven, so now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, they did something that was a little weird. One party took off his sandal, gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Like, if you're going to sell your house, you got one shoe, man. Is, 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 is that good, right? A lot of one-shoed people running around. Verse 8, guardian redeemer says to Boaz, buy it yourself, remove the sandal. Boaz announced to the elders, all the people, today you're my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi the property. It's like, I got the land of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. Then he says, verse 10, I've also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow, 
doesn't stop there. As my, what? Wife. It's interesting. It's like, I'm going a step further. I'm not just getting property here. In order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you're my witnesses. So the elders and all the people at the gate said, we're witnesses of this. May the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. You might be here like, well, who are those people? Listen, here's what they're praying. I don't have time to tell you the whole story. Here's what they're praying. I pray that Ruth will be really fertile. That's what, that's what they're praying. It's a prayer of fertility. You know why they're praying that? Because Rachel and Leah are the moms of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what they're praying. The, the, all 12 tribes of Israel came from either Rachel or Leah. Here's what you got then. They're saying, then may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous. So they're praying, hey, I hope you have lots of kids and I hope that you're famous and through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez. Okay, who's that? Whom Tamar, at that moment, all of the original readers would have been like, whoop, 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 Tamar. Because Genesis 38 tells us the story of Tamar who bore a son to Judah who just happened to be her father-in-law. And she was a foreign woman, a Canaanite woman, and she was overlooked because no one would take care of her as a widow. And what they're saying is, I want somehow this foreign woman, Ruth, to be accepted into the family. That's what they're saying. Verse 13, you with me? All the single adults in the room, listen close, verse 13. All the single, I have a lot of my friends in this room, I meet with you on Sunday nights, lean in. If you're a teenager, lean in. If you're an older single adult, lean in right now. I want to tell you something and then we'll race on. It's not the purpose of the sermon, but I want you to hear it. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he then made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Notwithstanding, pretty cool story, right? It's like you can almost hear the music in the background. It's like, oh, love it, right? But not only is it a cool story, in verse 13, listen close, I want you to hear this, because God says it all throughout his word. This is God's pattern. Here's God's pattern. I'm going to rip off some words from an author, his name's Mark Driscoll, but here's God's pattern. You ready? Covenant, then consummate, then conceive. Let me put it in some different terms. God's pattern is all the young men in the room, listen to what I'm getting ready to say. Marry her, marry her, then make love to her, then manage a family with her. That's God's pattern. It's interesting, isn't it? And so that's what happens in the story. The story continues on, verse 14. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord. Woo! You know, they're like, celebrate who... This day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. God's provided. May he become famous throughout Israel. Verse 15, he will renew your life, sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Look here, do you remember when Naomi got to Bethlehem? She said, I'm empty-handed and Ruth's standing beside her. And now all of a sudden they're pointing to Ruth and say, you got something better than seven sons. 
Like all she could think about at first was, I lost my two sons and my, my husband. And they're saying, man, she's better than seven sons. Look what it says, verse 16. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. Look here a second. Do you guys see where we've come? The, the story of Ruth? Do, do you see where we've come? Naomi, chapter one. Life is hard. Life is hard. She buried her husband. She buried her boys. She's bitter. All she can think about is how hard life has been to her. She's looking for somebody to blame. She's repelling people from following the God of Israel. She's a bitter old woman, end of chapter one. And she goes from the end of chapter one, this bitter woman, this looking to blame God, I'm empty-handed, to a grandma bouncing her grandson on her knee in chapter four. Don't you love it? The story didn't end in chapter one. I think if you're Naomi, you do. Think about Ruth. Look at where we've been. We read it, it's almost too easy. We read it in black and white. But she left everything that was familiar to her after she buried her own husband. After she buried her brother-in-law and her father-in-law. And she's going to people that aren't her family. She's going to a place unfamiliar. And she's literally eking out a living, gleaning in the field. Getting the margins of the field. That's where we find her in chapter two. And like, is this what my life is? Till you get to chapter four and it's like, wow, she's part of a family. She's got this husband. She's got a child. And think about Boaz. Don't, don't, don't ignore Boaz. Like, like where Boaz begins in chapter one, we don't hear much about Boaz. What's he doing? He's just doing the routine mundane of life. Going to work every day. Worshiping. And I have to wonder to myself, I wonder if Boaz ever wondered in those 10 years of chapter one, is this what my life's gonna be? Just kind of putting in the time, going through the motions day after day. But when you get to the end of chapter four, you see Boaz is a dad, he's a husband. You see, it makes me think something very interesting. This is a really good story. And we love good stories. In fact, I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you love watching a good story on a movie? You love watching movies and you love good... Raise your hand nice and high. I want to see. Put your hands down. How many of you are more like, I like to read a good story. I like reading books and stuff like that, right? Yeah, we love a good story. You know why we love a good story? I like how screenwriter and teacher Robert McKee put it. He said that we go to the movies. Think about this. I, I think this is true. Because we hope to find in someone else's story something that will help us understand our own. I think that's why we like stories. I think that's why I've gotten so much feedback about the story of Ruth, to be honest with you. He says, we go to live in a fictional reality, and somehow that illuminates our daily reality. Somehow we love stories, and we love to hear people's stories because we're looking to make sense of our own story. Here's why. Because our life is not a mathematical formula. Your life is not a mathematical formula. It's a drama that is literally playing out one scene at a time, one paragraph at a time, one line at a time, which is the problem for some of us in this room. And I think it's a problem that is described well in a book written by John Elridge. Listen and see if you can't relate a little bit with what he says. He says, for most of us, life feels like a movie. The problem is we feel like we arrived 45 minutes late to it. Something important seems to be happening. I mean, good things happen to us, sometimes beautiful things. We meet somebody, fall in love. We find work that fulfills us. 
But unfortunately, tragic things happen too. You fall out of love, or perhaps the person you fell in love with fell out of love with you. Work begins to feel like punishment. Everything starts to feel like an endless routine. If there's meaning to this life, why do our days seem so random? Why is this drama that we've been dropped in the middle of seem so purposeless for many of us? If there's a God, what sort of story is he really telling? No wonder we keep losing heart. We find ourselves in the middle of a story that's sometimes wonderful, sometimes awful, oftentimes it's confusing, and we haven't a clue how to make sense of it all. It's like we're holding in our hands some pages torn out of a book. These pages are the days of our lives. Sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? Fragments of a story. They seem important, or at least we long to know they are, but what does it mean? If only we could find the book that contains the rest of the story. G.K. Chesterton said, with every step of our lives, we enter into the middle of some story, which we many times misunderstand. See, here's what I know. The reason I think we like story is because sometimes when we watch the story on the screen, read it in the book, or even listen to the story of Ruth, somehow we begin to identify, relate, and want that story to help us make sense of our story, and I think the story of Ruth does. I think the story of Ruth helps us make sense of our story. You're saying how? Three ways. I want you to write them down. Three ways. First and foremost, I think it helps make sense of my story because I realize in the story of Ruth that my story is not finished yet. My story is not finished yet. Guys, think about this. I love the fact that Naomi, at the end of chapter one, God wasn't finished with her story. That Naomi shows up in chapter four. That she goes from being bitter to blessed, right? I'm so grateful that Ruth's story in chapter two, gleaning away in obscurity, wondering in this confusing silence that God had offered her, what's gonna happen with me away from my family, everything familiar to me? And God wasn't done with her story. God's not done with your story this morning. You see, here's the temptation. Listen close, I wanna explain it this way. For many of us in this room, Here's our temptation. Our temptation is to somehow, somehow walk through the different chapters of our life. And our temptation is, as we walk through the chapters of our life, is to title our life whatever chapter we're walking through. Here's what I mean by that. Some of you in the room right now are walking through a chapter in your life called pain and loss. You lost somebody very close to you. Can I tell you some good news? Ruth and Naomi could have had a cup of coffee with you and understood your story. They would have understood exactly what it's like. Some of you are walking through a chapter where you've lost somebody. They have exited your world, whether through death, maybe divorce, whatever it might be, but they're gone. Some of you are in a deep chapter of pain, and you're tempted this morning to say, that's my life. And the story of Ruth somehow says that's a chapter of your life, but God's not done with your story. Some of you are in a deep chapter of disappointment. You know why? Because life didn't go quite the way you planned it. I, I, I don't have an idea. Naomi woke up one day and said, you know something? If I could plan my life out, I think it'd be great if I was a widow, if I was homeless, if I was on welfare. I think that'd be great, you know? I don't think she did that. See, some of you are sitting here, I'm looking in your eyes, you're like, man, my life has not gone how I have planned it. 
my marriage, my kids, my job, whatever it might be, and you're sitting there and you're in a chapter, chapter of deep disappointment. The temptation is, I'm just gonna write that over the title of the book of my life. And, and that's what Naomi did. She's like, I'm just Mara. I'm just bitter. That's who I am. And God's like, no, 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 no. I'm not done writing your story. Like, there's more to write. Some of you are sitting here this morning, and you know something? You're in a chapter of failure. Like, like, like we read the story of Ruth, and you're like, yeah. I'm the guy who has been walking into the land of compromise. Or maybe we read the story of reading like, yep, I'm taking shortcuts all over the place. And I started ignoring God. And, and you're sitting here and you know full well, man, I am in a chapter where I have been a miserable failure turned my back on God. In fact, some of you are sitting here and everybody around you is saying you are a failure and you are very tempted this morning this moment, to write that chapter title over the title of your life, I'm just a what? Failure. I just don't measure up. And the story of Ruth somehow tells me this, that, that whereas that might be the chapter you're walking in right now, that doesn't have to be the story of your life, that God's not done. My guess is some of you in the room can relate with Boaz because you're in a chapter of your life, and you know what that chapter is? It's mundane and routine. Monday through Friday, clock in, clock out. Provide food on the table, that's what I do. You're a good guy, you're a good gal. You're taking care of your family. You're coming to church, you're like, I'm doing all the right things. But somewhere along the way, it's hit you, it's like, wow, is this just kind of what my life is? Mundane routine, I just clock in, clock out, I just go through the motions, I just do the right thing, I just show up. And somehow the story of Ruth, and particularly the character of Boaz, tells us that 90% of life is just showing up. 90% of life is just showing up. But somehow in the middle of showing up, somehow in the middle of what seems routine, what seems ordinary, there's an extraordinary God who's continuing to write your story. There's some of you sitting here today, and I can see it in some of your eyes because your eyes pop up at certain times. It's interesting to me because the chapter you're in right now is one that Ruth could relate to all too well. It's a chapter of confusing quiet. It's like somehow in your life, you're like if God would just tell me, speak up, God, I need you to show up. You're like, it just feels so deafening, quiet. And that's Ruth. That's Ruth. Do you ever think about it? When you read the story of Ruth, can I tell you something? Maybe you haven't noticed this. There are no miracles in the book of Ruth. Like, I'm the guy who's like, God, if you'd just kind of like show up and kind of do something magnificent, and man, then it would. Ruth didn't get that. <laughs> There's no angels. Like, no, no angel shows up and says, Ruth. How many of you are like, that'd be so cool if God just sent me an angel tell me what to do. Raise your hand. If you love it. Can I tell you something? If he, if he did that, it'd scare the liver out of you, all right? It just would. I promise you it would. But, but, but no angels, no audible voice. Of, that's just rude. I mean, she's just kind of gleaning. I have to think that at certain times she's like, man, I'm, I'm, 
I'm sinking my hope into this God, the God of Naomi, but it's like, whoo, man, it just seems like it's so quiet. And yet all through the story of Ruth, you see a God who's sovereign in his sovereign silence. He continues to write on the pages of her story. You see, I am so glad that God was not done with Naomi's story. God was not done with Ruth's story. God was not done with Boaz's story. God's not done with yours. He's not done with yours. I, I don't know which chapter you're in, but some of you are like, I'm in such a chapter of deep loss. And there's a sense to which God is so real in his word. He's like, I know. But this loss, this valley that you feel is a valley that I want to walk with you through. It's not a place for you to land your life. Some of you are in such deep disappointment and and God's like, you can be real about that. That's the one thing I so admire about Naomi. You can be real about that. But it's not a place where I want you to land so that you stay bitter the rest of your life. I want you to keep trusting. I don't understand, but I want you to keep walking. And some of you are in a chapter of deep failure. The worst thing you can do is minimize it, ignore it, but the worst thing you can do on this side is to allow that to be the title of the rest of your life. God's not done writing your story. And he's in the business of taking people who've walked through miserable chapters of failure saying, that's not final. I'm a God of the second chance. I'm a God of hope. I love that about the story of Ruth. Man, you get to the end of this and you're like, oh man, they're having a kid. Everything's great. You can hear the music. Naomi's sitting there with her grandson. Isn't there a part of you that if this was a movie, you'd be like, oh, popcorn's done, movie's done. And you'd be really tempted to get up at this point like, The movie, the story's done, right? And it's almost like the moment you get up from your seat in the middle of the story, you hear the narrator come back on. And you sit back down. And the narrator begins in verse 17. Story's not done. Because the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. Look at this. The father of, say it out loud with me, David. The rest of Ruth is the part we normally skip when we're reading through the Bible, right? But I want to read every word of it. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. He liked fish. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Just seeing if you're awake. There's our guy, Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. I'm going to show you something in the book of Ruth that's going to make this pop that maybe you haven't seen. Flip your page back to chapter 1, verse 1. Just just do it. I want you to see. I want the Bible to come alive to you. Chapter 1, verse 1 says this, that the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, happened in the days who ruled? The judges ruled. There's no king in Israel. Everybody's doing whatever they want to do. It's a free-for-all. The book of Ruth, story of Ruth, happens in... In the days when the judges rule, everybody's doing their own thing, and the very last word 
in the book of Ruth is the name of the most famous king in Israel. Somehow this story wasn't just a love story. Ruth and Boaz got together. This is awesome. Had a family and they lived happily ever after. Somehow God wants us to see that Ruth's story was bigger than that. That literally Ruth and Boaz are the great grandparents of King David. It's like, you're kidding me. King David, like giant killer, champion warrior, man after God's own heart, that King David. Here's what it makes me realize makes me stop and realize that my life and your life is much bigger than I think. It's bigger than I think. Ruth's life was much bigger than I think she ever imagined. We can get so caught up in living our life that we forget we're leaving a legacy. Her life was, I don't think she ever stopped and said, you know, someday I think it'd be really cool if I could be the great grandma of a king. I don't think that hit her. And yet her story helps me realize that none of our stories are isolated. None of them are just the minute details of the day-to-day, although that is important. But somehow our life is bigger than we ever imagined. And why is that important? Listen, I don't know about you. Maybe you don't struggle with this, but I know this. I can get so focused on making a living that I forget to leave a legacy. I know this, I know you probably don't struggle with this, but I know for me, I can get so focused on getting ahead that I don't leave anything behind. I'm sure no one in this room struggles with this, but but, but for me, I can get so focused on living it up that I forget to pass it down. You see, here's what I know. When I preach a funeral, if, if I have the privilege of, of being a part of your funeral, I'm going to tell you some of what I'm going to say. Since you won't be there, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say, all right? <laughs> part of what I say at a lot of funerals that I get a chance to be a part of is there's three things you can do with your life. This is worth writing down. You can waste your life. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's just party and let's go out partying. Let's just live it up. <whistles> Man. You can waste your life. The second thing, you get a little older, and you're like, oh, man, that's wasting the life, not so much, so then I can spend my life. That's the American dream. I can spend my life getting ahead. I can spend my life making a name for myself. I can spend my life being successful. I can spend my life, or I can invest my life in what will outlast my life, and that's a legacy. You see, I think somehow when I read the story of Ruth, I realize my life, your life is bigger than I thought. It impacts beyond our life. That the moment we stop breathing isn't the moment our life stops impacting. You already know that. Here's the deal. Some of you in this room are parents. Your life's bigger than you thought. God has given you gifts. They're called children And the investment of your daily deposits in their life will far outlast your life. You know how I know that? I'll just tell you how I know that. Because a couple of weeks ago, I sat in my office with a guy whose life is coming off the rails. It's fallen apart. 
And I just was asking him questions. And when we got down to the meat of what was going on, here's the problem. He was doing anything he could to try to get the attention of his father just so his father would say, I notice you and I'm proud of you. The problem is his father's dead. You see, here's what I know. Dads, moms, our life is bigger than we think. Your life impacts further than you think. Oh, it's not just parents. It's not just parents. I look around the room and some of you are grandparents. If you're in the room and you're a grandparent, do not, I beg of you, do not underestimate the impact of your life in the life of your family. I will tell you something. I got surprised by my daughter and my son sitting right here. They came home for Thanksgiving. And I love having them here. As they sit right there, I'm just going to talk to them a second because you have been impacted by a woman you've never met. The two of you and your life has been impacted forever and always by a woman that you never met and you are very thankful you weren't named after. Her name was Myrtle. (laughs) She was my grandma. And my grandma, when no one else in her family did, chose to follow Jesus Even when her own husband didn't, she chose to place her faith and trust in Christ. And she chose to begin depositing daily into the lives of her children, her three children, one of whom happened to be the oldest. His name was John, who just happened to be my father. Some of you have commented on my shiny watch. You're like, that doesn't look like your style. It's not but I wear it every Sunday, only Sunday, in the morning because this is the watch my mother gave to my father on their 50th wedding anniversary. I wear it because I remember that my dad's life was bigger than he thought. Your life is bigger than you think. Some of you are young adults and teenagers in the room. You're like, man, that's that's good application for old people. No, it's not. Your life's bigger than you think. The decisions you make today, they're going to determine your tomorrows. But listen to me. They're not just going to determine your tomorrows. They're going to impact a lot of other people and their tomorrows. I promise you. Sunday night, I shared with a bunch of young adults that the second most important decision you're ever going to make in your life is who you marry. The decision of who you marry. And that will impact the rest of your life and a lot of other people's lives. Our life's bigger than we think. It's bigger than we stop and think about. Sometimes we get so focused on making a living and getting ahead that we don't think about our legacy and what we're leaving behind. But then when I look at the story of Ruth, I realize not only was her life bigger than she thought, but when you pan out the story of Ruth and you see her story in this great big story, the story of God, you realize it's even bigger yet. Because her story is connected to a story we're getting ready to run into at Christmas time. And a part of that story that we don't like to read, but it's part of the story, is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Look at this. Stay with me. You're like, man, this is boring. No, it's not. Genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham, father of Isaac. Isaac, father of Jacob. Jacob, father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, father of... Perez, ringing a bell. Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. 
Perez, father of Hezron, Hezron, father of Ram, Ram, father of Aminadab, Aminadab, father of Nashon, Nashon, father of Salmon, Salmon, father of Boaz, look at this, whose mother was who? Rahab, story of Jericho, prostitute, saved. Boaz, father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, father of Jesse, Jesse, father of King David, and then you jump down to verse 15. Iliad, father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, father of Methan, Methan, father of Jacob, Jacob, Joseph, husband of Mary, Mary, mother of, say it out loud with me, Jesus, who is the Messiah. It's amazing because I don't think it would have ever dawned on Ruth. She was the great grandma to King David, but she was the great to the 29th power grandma of Jesus. I want you to know something about your story, and I want you to write it down this way, that you and I are part of God's story. She was part of God's story. When you pan out far enough, you find out that your story didn't begin the day you were born. My story did not begin on April 23rd, 1966. My story, your story began in eternity. Your story and my story began in eternity. You're like, how do you get that? Look at Ephesians 1. I gotta be quick. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. In him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins. Listen, when I read that, I read the fact God's been thinking about me a long time. A long time. And he's been thinking about you a long time. I'm going to invite the band to make their way out, but don't put your stuff away. Because I want to talk to at least one of you in the room. At least one of you, and I don't know who, if I'm honest. My practice is when I get an anonymous note, I never read it, just so you know that. I just throw it away. If I get an anonymous note, I throw it away. So if somebody's going to be mean, I throw it away. Like, you know, put your name on it. We can have a conversation. Last Sunday, when I left, somebody left me an anonymous letter. I normally throw it away. The letter was so thick, I sat down and read it. I'm glad I did, because this person just poured their pain out, their heartache, As they poured their pain out, they signed their letter this way, the only person I know who can go unnoticed wherever they go. If that's you, first let me tell you this, I want to talk to you. I'd love a chance to talk to you because I can tell you this. This morning, the God of the universe that spoke it all into existence notices you. He sees you. I don't know who you are. He sees you. The story of Ruth tells me that my story begins in eternity, but when you read the genealogy of Jesus, you know what you find? That there is mess after mess after mess after mess. Tamar, she took shortcuts. Rahab, she was a prostitute. Abraham, man, he slept with his his servant, taking shortcuts. Mess after mess after mess after mess until you get to the end and you get Jesus the mess I uh, it makes me realize that being part of God's story, that I'm a mess. You're a mess. I need a Messiah. 
Some of you are sitting here like, there's no way I could be part of God's story. I'm too messed up. You're the reason for the story. You're the reason for the story. You're the reason for Christmas. You're the reason for the cross. You're the reason for Christ. Some of you have been going to church so long, like you see the mess in everybody else, but you don't see it in you. And I will tell you, you'll never recognize your part in God's story till you see that you're a mess. You're a mess. I'm a mess. I need a mess ayah. He came from a mess for people who are messed up. And I'll tell you this, when it comes to the story of God, your life would never make sense to you become a part and see yourself as part of God's story. Your life is never going to make sense until you put it in the context of God's story for your life. Here's the deal. I don't know if you've ever panned out far enough to say, yes, Jesus, I need you to save me from my sins into your family. But the God of the universe has seen you from eternity past and he loves you. He sent Jesus to die for you, to take your place on the cross. This morning you can say, yes, yes, I trust Jesus. Some of you are sitting here and you've been so busy on making a living that you haven't thought about your legacy. You're so busy getting ahead, you haven't thought about what you're leaving behind. And maybe the story of Ruth is for you to stop and say, wow, my life's bigger than I thought. And there's a whole bunch of you this morning that you're stuck in a chapter and you're really tempted to put that as the title of your life. And this morning, this morning God says, listen, this is a chapter you walk through. This is not a title for the rest of your life. And so God, as we sing these songs and we finish this morning, I am praying that you would lean into us, that you would challenge, change, encourage, comfort, however you see fit this morning. I thank you, not simply for the story of Ruth, but for your story, the story of Jesus.